verses 1 through 4. We have been marching our way through Philippians. We've been about a few months now, and we are now just coming to chapter 2. Please hear God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let's pray. Father, as we have read Your Word and as this um, has as its intent uh, sweetness and love because of the selfishness of our hearts, it can be a bitter pill to swallow. And so I pray that You would give me uh, wisdom as I proclaim Your Word. I pray that You would give uh, my hearers grace to receive it as the Word of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, there was a church in Dallas that suffered a bitter split. The division was so bad that the two sides sued each other to remove the other side from being able to worship there. And of course, this is not in keeping with Scripture. Um, to take um, uh, matters of the church into the public courts, but uh, they went there anyway. And the case went all the way to the Texas Supreme Court. The Texas Supreme Court dismissed the case by sending it back down to the denominations courts where it belonged in the first place. But because of the public attention drawn to this church split and it making its, all the, making its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, one of the Dallas newspapers began investigating why did the church split take place in the, uh, in the, in the first place. And here's what they found. This was the root cause of this very large church that split right in two. The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. It's kind of humorous. You know, I know of a PCA church in Mississippi that had a split. Half the church meets in the building that they that the church was meeting in. The other half of the church meets at the other end of the block. What does that say about their witness in that town? Also, uh, I served as the stated supply for a Korean church in Panama City. The reason I was the, uh, the stated supply is that um, half the church decided they didn't like the pastor, and so they changed the locks on the doors so that the pastor and uh, the, the people that were following the pastor could not get into the congregation. Uh, because of language barriers, we had a hard time working through reconciliation. 
so the, the presbytery just assigned me to be the stated supply for a while while the other half of the congregation uh, met at, uh, the, at uh, Covenant Presbyterian in the afternoons. Um, I could even tell of divisions between individuals here in our own congregation that make uh, about as much sense as those others. But, of course, I will not mention those. I say all this to say that the unity of the church is fragile. Very fragile. Disunity, discord, conflict have so poisoned so many churches. And the sad result is that when the unity of the church is destroyed, then so is their witness. Remember the Lord Jesus and how He told the disciples, by this all people will know you are My disciples, by your love one for another. But when there is division and infighting, the world says, how is the church any different than anybody else? Also, disunity has the effect of turning the fellowship of the church in, uh, inward, in on itself. The church wastes energy worrying about the drama, about the hurt feelings, about which party is right or wrong. And the church then has little energy uh, left to be a shining light uh, on a hill that... Um, a shining light to a needy world. John MacArthur uh, says this. He says, As a pastor, the thing I hate most is spiritual apathy, indifference to the things of the world, indifference to holy truth, indifference to spiritual issues. Apathy is the thing I hate most. But the thing I fear most as a pastor is discord, disunity, conflict, and division. I wholeheartedly agree with him. Westminster has existed for 40 plus years and is going strong, but nothing will destroy our congregation faster and with more damage than discord, disunity, conflict, and division. The Apostle Paul also greatly feared conflict and discord because he knew that it would necessarily lead to division. I noticed something here in this passage and it hit me like a ton of bricks. No other commentator noticed this, so you need to check me on this and see if what I'm saying is right. Because I really love to read the commentators and find them saying the same things I'm saying. So when I'm out there looking at all the other commentators, I get a little worried. Look at verse 1. Here in verse 1, Paul is pleading with the, the, the Philippians to be unified. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Paul is pouring out his heart. He is saying, You have received so much from Christ. 
You have received encouragement. You have received comfort. You have received fellowship. He has treated you with tenderness and compassion. And so He's telling the Philippians, that's what you owe to each other. Paul is so desperate for the Philippians to be unified that he even uses himself as a motive. Here in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. I understand what Paul's saying here, why he's willing to use himself as a motive. Because sometimes, as a preacher, when you've loaded your gospel gun and you've fired every gospel bullet at the congregation and you feel like you still haven't uh, reached the mark or, or hit the target, it's tempting to load yourself into the gun and, and, and fire yourself at the congregation. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing after he pleads with him. If you have received uh, any comfort, any encouragement, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of one mind. He is desperate that they heed his encouragement to be unified. So here's the insight that I... I hope to have gained, but I want you to check check me on. Remember last week, here at the end of, of uh, chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, it is a gift from God for you to suffer. It is just as much a gift from God for you to suffer as it is a gift from God for you to believe. Remember that? But yet he just stated it. Um, he just he just stated it and moved on. That was pretty hard medicine to swallow. But he did not plead with them, with them about this. He he said it. He expected it of them, and he moved on. But here, when we come to chapter two, when it comes to him expecting them to be unified, to have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He pleads with them. Here's the insight. I believe that Paul knows it is more difficult to suffer slights and selfishness from other believers than it is to receive suffering as a gift of God. In other words, Paul believes it is easier for a church to suffer persecution than it is for a church to keep their unity as a congregation. That is why he is pleading with them here to be unified. So what does this unity look like? Well, verse 2 describes it. Um, before we define it, let me tell you what it is not. Paul is not asking the Philippians to unite around some external, contrived, uh, some internal, contrived agreement. Rather, he is aiming at a deep gospel unity. He's not asking the, the Philippians to have some some kind of fluffy, therapeutic uh, group hug. That's not what he means by unity at all. Likewise, 
we here at Westminster Presbyterian Church are not aiming at some unity that are, that that uh, that is superficial. The unity that we are aiming at is not a unity of you coming and sitting in the same room uh, each week without killing each other or without being rude to each other. We're looking for a unity that is deeper than that because that is the unity that the Scripture calls us to. We are aiming at a unity that begins in the heart, of course, with love, that captures the mind and that unites our souls together. Again, listen to Paul's description of the unity in verse 2. He says, "...complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and also of one mind." I like John MacArthur's illustration of the unity that Paul is aiming at. The unity that we are aiming at. John MacArthur uh, says, if you, have a, if you have a bag of marbles, you have a certain unity. You have one bag that's full of marbles, and the marbles are all pushed together against one another. They're packed in together. In other words, that which binds the marbles into unity is the container. The unity is on the outside. That which binds them is on the outside. But what happens if you tear the bag? Of course, the unity is destroyed as the marbles escape. But on the other hand, if you have a magnet and you have these metal shavings, the magnet draws the shavings in. The magnet has an internal power that draws the metal shavings together. There's this internal force. That's what we are called to be. Not a collection of marbles meeting in the same building, but a church family that sticks together because of our common love for the Lord Jesus Christ, our common commitment to His Gospel, and our common commitment to each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-6, through 6, the Apostle Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, we are unified together because we have the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, recognize the unity that you have in God's Spirit. Recognize the unity and live in the power of that of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in John MacArthur's illustration, is the magnet that is drawing us together by our common love for the gospel, our com- common love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and our common love for each other. 
I love what Ligon Duncan says. He says, everybody who, who, and you'll have to listen closely, everybody who is united to Jesus Christ is united to everybody who's united to Jesus Christ. Everybody who has Jesus as his or her Lord and Savior has everyone who has Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior as a brother and sister. We have been brought together into a family. And so how sad it is. How dishonoring to Christ. How dishonoring it is to the Holy Spirit if we claim to have the Holy Spirit as the center of our unity, and yet we do not show the fruits of that unity by not loving one another, by allowing ourselves to fracture off because of conflict or discord or disagreement. In the interest of time, I'm going to jump down to the practice of Christian unity in verses 3 and 4. And so as you see verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I'm going to make my point by using my native Georgia language. When he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, there ain't nobody who doesn't practice selfish ambition and vain conceit. Every one of us in this room, even we, when we are our most self-giving, we still have moments of self-centeredness, of selfishness, and of pride. And it's always, it seems, sitting on our shoulder, whispering in our ear. And most times, when we are sacrificing for other people, we are doing so for selfish reasons. That's why church unity is so fragile. Because of our common selfishness, self-centeredness, and pride. Make no mistake, there will be failures of communication here in the church. There will be legitimate disagreements here in the church. There will be different agendas here in the church. There will be sinners sinning against each other here in the church. But when you add self-centeredness and selfishness and pride, what you've got is a tinderbox ready to be set on fire. And in order for us to survive as a congregation, we've got to be experts at repenting of these things, repenting of the selfishness, self-centeredness, the pride. And so the first step in repenting of these things is to acknowledge that we are, in our core, self-centered, selfish, and prideful. But when you do repent of these things, what does it look like? Well, the second half of verse 3 tells us what it looks like. He says, But in humility, count yourselves more significant than yourselves. Humility is the key to unity in the church. When we are humble, 
can tolerate being sinned against? Because we know that we have sinned against other people. And we know that we are very liable in the very near future to continue to sin against other people. And so, when we're humble, instead of getting all self-righteous and attacking the other person, we might go to them in love, taking the board out of our own eye in order that we might be able to help them take the speck out of their own eye. But humility is a prerequisite. Also, when we're humble, we consider others as more important or more significant than ourselves. Again, here in verse 3, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Some of you have the translation, count count others better than yourselves. I don't really like that word. Uh, I like the way the ESV puts it because it's not a comparison of of quality, it's a comparison of rank. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is you must consider yourself of a lower rank than everybody else. If you were to look around this room this morning, no matter what direction you look, everywhere around you, you are of a lower rank than everybody else. Here I'm in the pulpit and I'm able to look out at at you and I need to realize I need to count you as more significant, more important than myself. That's what humility does for you. And so he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Remember in Mark 9, Jesus walked up on the disciples and they stopped talking all of a sudden. And Jesus asked them when He came into the house, what were you discussing on the way? It says The Scripture says, and they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve to Himself and He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you really embrace this teaching about church unity, then verse 4 will also be true of you. Not only will you be humble, not only will you consider others more significant or important than yourself, but you also won't look to your own interests. So verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. You'll look outside yourself. You'll be seeking to bless everybody else. This is a good barometer of how you're doing when it comes to repenting of your selfishness, your self-centeredness, and your pride. Because if you are repenting of these things, the natural outcome will be that you are serving and blessing everybody else. Watchman Nee, the great Chinese evangelist, tells a story about a Christian um, that he knew while he was in China. This Christian was a poor rice farmer that lived uh, on a hill. 
And he had these rice paddies. And of course the rice paddies need a lot of water. And so he would pump the water uphill to his rice paddies. But when he would come the next day, the rice paddy, his rice paddy would be empty because his neighbor downhill, who was selfish, would open up the dikes and let the water flow down into his rice paddy. It was quite frustrating to this poor Christian farmer. But instead of going and confronting uh, his neighbor, what he did was he went to prayer and he asked God for wisdom. And you know what God taught him? What he came, with, came away with after he prayed? What he ended up doing was getting up a little earlier in the day and he would go and pump water for his neighbor first. And then he would pump his own water. And so there was no need for his neighbor to steal his water. In keeping with verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You know what happened to his neighbor? His neighbor ended up becoming a Christian when he saw the selflessness. I imagine you may be tempted to dismiss the force of these verses because this is not something that is typical of the way we conduct ourselves in church. This is not typical of the way churches here in America conduct themselves. And so it might be tempting to dismiss these verses because there's so much to obey in the Bible. These are four short verses. I can just lump these in with the whole rest of the Bible and, um, and ignore them to a certain extent. It is my contention, it is Jesus' contention, that these verses, this idea of Christian unity, this idea of being able to be recognized as a follower of Jesus by your love one for another, strikes at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The world says, first of all me, then others, lastly God. Christianity says, God first, others second, me last. To disregard this teaching is to disregard Christ. To disregard this teaching is to put the very unity and existence of Westminster Presbyterian Church in jeopardy. If you have a brother or sister and whom you have a broken relationship with, whom you can't even speak to without gritting your teeth, you need to mend those relationships. This is where real life meets the real Gospel. Jesus Christ, He left heaven and came here to earth and became a human being in order that He might be mistreated and hung on a cross. But He left heaven, came here to earth, was willing to undergo this mistreatment, willing to become sin so that He might be punished on the cross in order that we, that He might purchase us for Himself. And after His resurrection and His ascension, He sent His Spirit into the church. 
His Spirit is here with us now. Our love one for another is because of the Holy Spirit. He empowers us to love each other unconditionally. In conclusion, I want to encourage you as a congregation. I think our unity over the 40 years, over the long haul, has been strong. That is the Holy Spirit's work in our midst. And it is cause for rejoicing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank You that You have not left us here alone to work out our salvation on our own, but You have sent Your Spirit, Your powerful Spirit, to work in us, to draw our hearts together in order that we might support each other in our pursuit of Christ, in order that we might support each other in our witness to the world. I pray that our light would burn brightly before the watching world because they need Jesus so badly that we cannot afford to have the disunity that takes away from our energy, that takes our eyes off of Christ and places them on ourselves. And so, pour out Your Spirit continually upon us, especially as we come to that part of the service where we get to uh, commune with You through through the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.